Good afternoon, New Hope. Uh, happy Easter. Uh, today's scripture reading comes from Job chapter 19, uh, verses 24 through 27. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. This is the word of God. I get New Hope and Happy Easter once again. We get to study God's Word today, and we get to think about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I, I once heard it said that there's nothing a resurrection can't fix. No matter what kind of sadness you're experiencing, no matter what kind of disappointment or illness or trouble you're experiencing, know this, it's nothing that a resurrection can't fix. Two nights ago, many of us were gathered right here for a Good Friday service. And there's a reason, of course, that we call it Good Friday. It is a Good Friday, but it would not have been a Good Friday if Sunday had not followed. It would have, in fact, been the worst day ever. That Friday was the darkest day in history, literally. The sun itself stopped shining, and the earth shook when its maker was murdered on a cross. He was beaten, impaled, he hung lifeless, and then he was buried. It was the worst day ever. But what happened on Sunday changed everything. You might say what happened on Sunday fixed everything. Jesus walked out of a grave. The grave could not hold them, as the song goes. You, you know, that stone was rolled away, and it wasn't rolled away so that Jesus could exit. No, he didn't need that. It was rolled away so that his disciples could go in and see that he wasn't there. He had been submerged in the ocean of judgment that we deserved. Jesus drowned in that ocean of judgment only to emerge alive. He walked through death and came out the other side, breathing, eternally, unmistakably alive. What I hope we'll realize today is that Jesus' death and his resurrection, they're not, it's not just an uplifting story. And it's, it's not even just a reminder that sometimes suffering will result in a resurrection. No, it's much more than that. Jesus' death and resurrection are a prototype. His death and resurrection show us how it is that the world works. It shows us how it is that life works for every follower of Jesus Christ. You see, because when God resurrected Christ, he was showing us what he was going to do 
what he will do for the entire universe. What God did when he resurrected Jesus is what he will do for the entire created universe, and he will do it for every last man, woman, and child who believes in Jesus, the Christ. There is nothing broken in this world that a resurrection won't fix. Maybe you remember these words that Jesus spoke in July, on July 12th, I almost said, in John 12. In John 12, soon before his own death, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. In that, in that scenario, Jesus is talking about himself as a seed. He's the seed there. He was buried in the earth, dead, but his death and his resurrection bore fruit and will bear more fruit. Resurrection life is the fruit for everyone who believes in him. And, and resurrection life for the sin-cursed world. The world we stand on right now. Paul the Apostle explains it this way. He says this in 1 Corinthians 15. This is the very same chapter, that, the very same section of Scripture that Joe was just reading from earlier. Oh, no, that, 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 that Che quoted earlier, I should say. That Che quoted earlier in the, in, the, in the beginning of our service. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That is, the first fruits of those who have died. For, as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. And this is going back to what Joe was talking about earlier. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. His resurrection first, and at his return, all who belong to him will be raised from the dead. None of us would argue with the fact that death is a certainty. It's guaranteed for all of us. If you live long enough, you're going to die. Every human must die. Well, resurrection is just as certain. So Paul says, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. As sure as you are about the, the unavoidable nature of death, you should be sure about the unavoidable reality of resurrection. First Jesus, then us. He's the prototype. Adam served as a representative for all of humanity. He was the first prototype in that sense. And when he fell, we all fell. He died, we all will die. But Jesus is the new representative. He suffered, he died, and he lives again, and so will we. I love the way one author puts it. Listen, he says, Jesus is like the needle going through the thick black cloth of suffering, judgment, and death. And, and Jesus bursts through the other side of that fabric, taking with him the thread. And that's us. Anyone who trusts in Jesus is united to him and takes the same path. He forged away through death. We follow on his coattails. 
Jesus walked through the sadness and the loneliness of Maundy Thursday, the night he was betrayed. He walked through the horror and the pain of Good Friday, and then, he, and then through the, the silent lifelessness of Holy Saturday. And he walked all the way through to the life and joy of Resurrection Sunday. There is nothing that a resurrection can't fix. We need to know this. Astonishingly, Job knew this. Over the past month, we've been reading his story, the story of Job. And we read early on in Job chapter 1 that he was, this man, a blameless man and an upright man who feared God and turned away from evil. We read about him in chapter 1 that that there were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest man of all the people of the East, Job 1 says. You know, I never noticed this until I read someone else describe it this way recently. But this description of Job and his fortune it sounds a little bit like the Garden of Eden. The, the abundance of it, the perfection of it, the peace of it. It, it. It's just like, a little bit like, that garden, that parad- paradise where God placed Adam and Eve. And just like in Eden, Satan was on the prowl. Satan questions Job's integrity. Satan accused Job of being a phony, of only worshiping God because of the benefits. Satan said to God, quote, you have blessed the work of Job's hands, God, and his possessions have increased in the land. But, but, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. God knew that Satan was wrong, but he accepted that challenge on Job's behalf. Not only did God touch all that Job had, he took it away. In one day, Job lost his family, he lost his wealth. Now first, Job's response was to worship his God. Job's immediate response was to submit himself to God's power and wisdom. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. How? And then the next day, Job lost his health. He was reduced to a feverish, scab-covered mess. He was writhing in pain, sleepless. His wife can't bear to see him suffer like this. She encourages him to curse God and die. But Job refuses. Job said to her, Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In other words, what what kind of servant of God am I if I'm only willing to take the good stuff? If I don't trust him when he hands me this, what kind of servant am I? And Job says, the narrator says, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. But as the horror dragged on and the confusion started to set in, Job began to ask natural questions, like, why? 
Why? Not just why is this happening. No, he started asking questions like, why was I ever born? If this is what my life is going to be reduced to, if this is what my life looks like, I'm trapped in pain and loss, why was I ever born? And, and, and Job's friends go there to comfort him. And we're going to finally look at, at next week, we're, gonna, we're two weeks from now, we're going to look at what they have to say to Job. It's not great. There's a lot of philosophizing that they do. A lot of long-winded philosophizing. They essentially accuse Job of doing something to deserve all this. His friends were a letdown. And that leads Job to look elsewhere. To look to another friend for comfort, for help. In Job chapter 16, we read these words. The suffering man says, Even now... Behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. His friends are accusing him. They're suspicious that you must have done something to bring all this upon yourself. He says, the only one who really knows the truth, the only witness to really stand in my defense, he's in heaven. He testifies for me. I have a friend who really understands. He's looking to heaven for the advocacy that he needs, for, for the defense that, that he needs against the, these accusations of his friends. He wants someone to intercede for him before God the Father because his friends on earth are useless at this point. They just added to his pain and his torment. And so in light of all that, look at Job chapter 19. I want to encourage you to open up a Bible if you have one or device and, and look at Job chapter 19. Look at what Job says to his friends. How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with your words? Remember, these were guys that went to Job to, quote, sympathize and comfort. He's saying, your words are hurting me. They're breaking me into pieces. Verse 3, these ten times you have cast reproach on me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? Jump down to verse 7. Behold, Job says, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. These words brought to mind some of these videos that I've seen recently of people, of, of elderly Asian people being, being attacked brutally in public places. And, and some of these videos, it's, it's, it's quiet. They're, 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 I can't even tell what's happening exactly. It's grainy. But I can't help but imagine that these women, for instance, who are being beaten and stomped on weren't crying out for help. And we see people walk by and drive by. Someone's behind the, the, a, a, a video camera in some cases, and no one does anything. No one stops. Job is expressing that kind of frustration. I'm not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. Just observers, like his three friends. 
He says of God, He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass. He has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped from me my glory and taken the crown off my head. He breaks me down on every side and I am gone. And my hope has he pulled up like a tree. All the hope that I ever had has been uprooted, he says. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. See what he's saying here. The God that I've served my whole life, it, the only way I can make sense of this is to think he considers me his enemy now. Where do I look for help if my adversary is the creator, the all-powerful ruler of the universe? Listen to the alienation and the loneliness that he feels. He says in verse 13, God has put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. He feels all alone. Look, verse 14, my relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. He's even lost the respect of his employees and his servants. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife, and I am a stench to the children of my own mother. Every young, even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. He's being ridiculed and mocked. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I loved have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. He's saying, I'm barely even alive. And he'd rather not be alive at all. And so he pleads with his friends. They're the only ones there. He says, verse 21, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Oh, you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Enough with your answers and your philosophizing. Have mercy on me. Can't you see what God has done to me? Verse 22, why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? You want to damage me more. You want to hurt me more. Why? Job realizes he's not going to get mercy from these guys. They can't give him what he needs. They don't have it in them. So Job's mind at this point goes elsewhere. And it's amazing. It's like a moment of clarity. He goes elsewhere for help. And here's the central text that we're looking at today. Verse 23. Oh, that my words were written. Job says, oh, that they were inscribed in a book. They were, Job. We're reading them right now. He'd be happy to know that. Verse 24, oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh... I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold, and not another. 
my heart faints within me. In this moment of glorious clarity, we see glimmers of hope starting to spring forth. We see Job, in a sense, coming to his senses, seeing something that his friends aren't able to see and that he perhaps wasn't able to see until that moment. We need to pay attention to, to three important words in here. Redeemer, earth, and flesh. There are lots of important words in here. They all deserve to have been written down. They all deserve to have been, as Job said, with an iron pen and lead engraved in the rock forever. These are eternal words. But we want to pick those three words in particular to look at. Redeemer, earth, and flesh. Redeemer. What does it mean? It's the word that was used, if you remember, when we were studying the book of Ruth. It's the word that was used to describe Boaz. That, that, that Hebrew word for redeemer, it's the, that idea of redeemer, I should say, it's kind of foreign to us in our culture. Although if you grew up in church, you've probably heard the word redeemer a lot. If you've been around church for a while, it's a familiar word, but I wonder if you really know what it means. It, it might just be like Christianese to many of us, right? We use certain words to talk about Jesus. We say he's Lord and Savior and he's Redeemer. Okay, we think, oh, those words are all interchangeable. He's all three of those things. They all mean the same thing. He's Lord, he's God, he's Redeemer, he's Christ. Well, all of those titles, all of those names mean something specific. Certainly there's overlap, but there's distinctive meaning in each of them. Redeemer is a fabulous word. In the ancient Eastern world, a Redeemer played an important role in a community, in a clan. The Redeemer was a kind of rescuer. He was there to turn for, to for help in times of need. For instance, if a relative fell into poverty, maybe had to sell their land to pay off a debt, or maybe even had to sell themselves into slavery to pay off a debt, the Redeemer in that family, the kinsman Redeemer, could step in and buy back the land for that person or, or buy back their freedom. If a relative was murdered or sued or unjustly accused of a crime, the Redeemer could step in and fight for justice. You see, the Redeemer's role was to make things right, to restore wholeness, to restore shalom to the clan the community and to the individual who finds himself in trouble. And this is what Job needs. He needs a redeemer bad. But who could possibly make things right for Job? Who can fix this situation he's in? He needs a supernatural redeemer unlike any other. He needs a divine redeemer. And that's the kind of redeemer he's talking about. And that's why in verse 26, Job calls his redeemer God. <laughs> because he needs a redeemer who is God. Who could possibly make things right for him? Only God. Only Jesus Christ himself fits this description. The kinsman, redeemer, and friend, and God. Job would not know that name. He didn't know the name of Jesus. He was born too early to know that name. But he knows more than we'd expect him to know. It's amazing. He speaks truth here that maybe 
Maybe he was surprised to hear these words coming out of his mouth. I wonder if he completely understood the depth of what he was saying. Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. He may not know the name of the Redeemer, but he knows that this Redeemer exists, that he's real, that there is someone out there that can restore wholeness to the situation. There is someone out there that can fix this, that can fix him and save him. Listen to the confident faith in Job's words in verse 25. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last I will stand, or he will stand upon the earth. I know it. I'm going to see him standing here on this earth. That's the second word we got to look at, earth. Earth. He doesn't say, I'm going to see my Redeemer in heaven in the clouds. He says, I'm going to see him standing on this earth. Job is not hoping to escape the suffering that he's experiencing by by escaping this little planet beyond the clouds. That's not what he's looking to. He's not looking to finally enjoy peace in some ethereal existence or in some other dimension or floating on clouds with a harp in his hand and and a beautiful white toga and some wings. No, his hope is on this earth. New Hope, this planet is not getting tossed into the trash heap. On the contrary, God is going to resurrect creation. He's going to resurrect this earth unto new life. Listen to what Romans 8 says. God does not view this world as disposable any more than he views you as disposable. Romans 8, verse 19 says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Verse 21, The creation itself, this planet, will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You see what's being said here. Resurrection for God's people means resurrection for God's world, too. Everyone who is in Christ by faith will experience resurrection power. And so will God's creation. I believe that we're going to find resurrection life to be more earthy than it is ethereal. We get hints of that in Scripture. On Easter Sunday, after Jesus rose from the dead, He did some supernatural things, didn't he? Like appearing in rooms. But he also did many natural things. Many mundane, earthy things. You know what Jesus did when he resurrected? He didn't float above the ground or sit in a meditation pose and pontificate. Certainly wasn't carrying a harp. Just silly images that maybe I grew up thinking that that's what the afterlife looks like. No, he did many natural things. You know what Jesus did? He went for a walk. (laughs) He went for walks with other people. He cooked breakfast. He ate lots of meals (laughs) with lots of different people. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that something we look forward to right now in the middle of COVID? I can't wait to be able to just share meals with people. It's so mundane. I believe it's something we're going to be doing for eternity. You see, Jesus' resurrection existence while he was on this earth was very human. And that gives us, perhaps it gives us a glimpse 
at the earthiness of our future resurrection life on a redeemed planet, made new, not just replaced, but made new the way you will not be replaced, you will be made new. And so it is with this planet. So it is with creation. Can't explain it, can we? All we can do is just say it and try to wrap our heads around it, that somehow this creation will be renewed, but not replaced. Any more than you're going to be replaced. And that leads us right into the final word that we're looking at here, flesh. Flesh. Verse 26, And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh, he says, I shall see God. Job's skin at this point was covered with boils that had become these scabbed over sores from head to toe. He scraped his skin with with shards of, of a clay pot just for some relief. In chapter 7, he says his skin was hard. It would break and run. In chapter 30, he said that his skin had become discolored, dehydrated. His skin was dying. And he knew eventually that his skin would be destroyed. Job would go the way of all flesh. That's what awaits every one of us, decay and decomposition. That's what our bodies will do one day. Decay and decompose. But, he says, after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. And he goes on to be emphatic and super clear. He says, of his God, of his Redeemer, whom I shall see for myself, my eyes shall behold, and not another... Job knows that his body is going to be renewed, not replaced. He says, these eyes, not some new eyes, these eyes are going to be renewed and I'm going to see him. In science fiction movies and comics and stuff like that, we can take minds and place them into new bodies, right? We can take, scientists can take, in science fiction movies, they can take consciousness and, and, and move it into a new shell, I think this is what like, happened to Vision, I think, in the Marvel Universe. Maybe Vision was something like this. I don't know. Maybe some of you comic nerds are like, no, actually. Sorry. I'm, I'm sorry if I got the details wrong there. I'm not mocking Marvel nerds. It's all good. But Job's not interested in his consciousness being moved to a new body. And the Bible's not interested in that either. The Bible only speaks about one kind of resurrection, and that's bodily resurrection. Redeemed flesh. Renewed, but still you. And that's what Job is banking on. He says, these eyes will see God. These hands and these arms are going to embrace my Redeemer. These feet are going to stand in the presence of his holiness. These vocal folds are going to speak with him. It's all going to be destroyed first. That's guaranteed. That's scientifically provable. It's all going to decay. But just as certain, it will all be raised. And there's nothing that a resurrection can't fix. Job experienced unspeakable trauma. 
And it has left him confused, and it has driven him to despair. We saw that last week in chapter 3. But suffering, as we also saw last week, is not linear. Suffering is a journey that it's marked by uneven terrain. There's peaks, there's dark valleys. And here in chapter 19, it seems like he's going through a deep, dark valley. And then all of a sudden, he experiences these moments of refreshing clarity. And, And this is not just a moment of optimism, delirium. No. It's a glimpse at Job's deepest hope. He knows that his Redeemer lives. Do you know if your Redeemer lives? Do you know that your Redeemer lives? Job knows that because his Redeemer lives, he will one day live again too. Made whole restored in a resurrected world. Not, that, not one like this that's stained and broken by the curse, but a resurrected world that's flooded with the bright light of shalom, perfect peace and wholeness. That's the kind of hope that's, that roots us and gives us stability in the midst of trouble and seeming hopelessness it's not the kind of this isn't the kind of hope that's meant to make us passive like oh just just bear the pain and wait eventually things will be okay no this is actually the kind of hope because we know that christ is risen and our redeemer will stand on this earth and we will see him in a renewed body on a renewed planet before him that gives us hope to not just persevere and stay alive and keep worshiping in the midst of trouble, but it gives us hope to actually push back against trouble, to push back against injustice, to push back against what is evil and wrong in this world. Because we know that even if we barely move the needle, one day that needle is going to be moved. So whatever we can do today to ease a brother or sister in their suffering, to help them even a small amount in their suffering, or anything we can do today to stop acts of evil, like the ones I was just describing earlier that have been caught on video, these acts of hate, any little step that we take to push back can be done with the hope that one day it's all going to be pushed away. When the stage is cleared, and reset for eternity. Job knows that because his Redeemer lives, he will one day live again too. He'll be made whole. He'll live in a resurrected world that's flooded with the light of God's perfect shalom. And so the question we need to ask is, do you know this? Do you really know it? Do you know it and believe it? Because you can be around people who believe this. I don't think, I don't know, I shouldn't judge, I don't know if Job's friends believe this. They were around Job. They heard that hope. They heard the talk about that Redeemer, but I don't know if they really believed it or not. And some of us can be around this kind of talk and around this kind of hope and still not believe it. And still not know it. Do you know that your Redeemer lives, so that it's your source of deepest hope. No matter what disappointment you face, no matter what illness you face, whatever 
loss or pain you experience, whatever depression you or family members encounter, do you know this, that your Redeemer lives and you will see him stand on this earth? That's the question that always needs to be asked, not just on Easter. Whenever we talk about resurrection, we got to ask, do you believe? That's what Jesus did. When Jesus talked about the resurrection to his friend who was in the middle of grief, who was lost in grief and mourning because her brother had just died, you know what Jesus said to his friend in the midst of that grief? Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That means if you believe in me, although you die, you will rise again and you will never die again. Eternal bodily resurrection. And then he says these words. He doesn't just drop that little nugget of beautiful truth. He says these words to her. Do you believe this? It's not enough for you to hear this. He says, do you believe it? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. He asks us the same question. What do you say? What do you say? Because when the rug gets pulled out from under us, as it had been for her and it had been for Job, we will need, you will need a redeemer to look to. And the people we are in your life may be much better than the three friends that Job got stuck with, but they're not good enough to fix what's been broken. They're not good enough friends. They're not wise enough. They're not powerful enough. Frankly, they don't even love you enough to be able to do for you what Jesus did. Although they love you deeply, only one loves you like this. Only one loves you so much that he was willing to give up his life. Walk through the pain, the loneliness of Thursday, into the horror and death of Friday, through the silence of Saturday, only to emerge alive for you on Easter Sunday. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we worship you. We extol your name, and we thank you that your resurrection isn't just an optimistic story about how evil sometimes doesn't prevail. No, Lord, we thank you for being the perfect prototype, the firstborn of all creation and the first fruits of resurrection. And Lord, how we look forward to seeing you face to face. enjoying resurrected life with you eternally, would you make that a reality for all of us in this place? In your name we pray. Amen.